I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the London-based architect and food urbanist, Carolyn Steele. Her work focuses on the everyday lives of cities and food's central role within them. Her first book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, provides a groundbreaking look at how to feed cities around the world on a daily basis. And her new book, which we're very excited about, Sitopia, How to Live Well on a Hungry Planet, comes out later this year. Carolyn is a multifaceted thinker, someone who really brings together the concentric circles of so many different fields. And it's this understanding of how food intersects with literally everything that made her someone we really, really wanted to have on the show. So let's get her on the line. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us here today. Great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. So I wanted to start with just what's on the top of your mind right now? (laughs) Yeah, the top is quite deep at this point. I mean, COVID-19 is mind boggling on every possible level. And I have a mind that likes to be boggled. I'm a habitual thinker. So even without a global pandemic, I tend to kind of have a lot going on in my head. And it's just extraordinary. I mean, it's terrifying. It's unsettling. I actually thought yesterday it almost epitomizes the uncanny Mm. because the uncanny is when everything sort of appears normal on one hand and totally the opposite on the other. And so you keep bouncing back and forth, you know. So it's kind of the evidence of things being really, really wrong is not as present as it would be in a war. And yet it's as devastating to many people's lives. So it's just, yeah, I mean, it just messes with your head in a really major way, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Well, and, And you're a food urbanist. Food is so central to how you live, how you think. What have you been cooking while you've been stuck at home? Yeah, and that's really interesting as well. I mean, pure comfort food, to be perfectly honest. It's slightly complicated because I have a lot of friends who are in the food industry. I mean, I guess you would expect that. They're small producers and they're they're small shops and things. So I'm really, really trying to get all my food from them. And actually, that's great because, you know, when all the supermarkets ran out of pasta, tin tomatoes and loo rolls. Not that those were items that I particularly needed, I have to add. It was just quite scary going to the supermarket. I went to my local shop and, and they were lovely and sort of said, look, you know, anything you need, we'll, we'll order in and we'll be fine. So that was really lovely. But no, comfort food. I mean, I roasted a chicken last night and for myself, because I live on my own, with all mm. the trimmings. You know, I made wonderful stuffing with sage and roast potatoes and vegetables I mean, the irony is I've been trying to eat less meat <laughs> because, you know, that, 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 that's good for the planet. But in these times, I just thought, I, you know, I need a chicken. I just need a chicken, <laughs> you know, because it's celebratory food. And, yeah. you know, and it, of course, it's a very, very good chicken, <laughs> um, a happy chicken. And it's supporting my local, my friends who have this, as I say, this very uh, lovely food business. But, you know, other than that kind of chewy things and chilies and lots of curries, anything warming, spicy, you know, just flush it down and try to make yourself feel, feel a bit better. Mm. From, from your perspective as a food urbanist, um, I'm sure you're also thinking at a large scale about, you know, what this pandemic is revealing in the species relationship to food. 
Mm. I mean, top to bottom, that seems to be everywhere. I would love to hear what you think about that. <laughs> How long have you got? I mean, <laughs> so from my point of view, COVID-19 reveals a bunch of stuff I've been thinking about for 20 years. And I guess, you know, one of the things that I would say is really weird for people like me is that kind of going, yeah, food is important. Yeah. And I guess it's quite nice that the rest of the world is now catching up with all of this stuff that's been terrifying me for, for decades. So that's one thing to say. I mean, another thing to say is that I am an optimist. And I mean, the world is not going to come out of this the way we went in. Our trajectory is forever altered. And in many ways, that could be a really, really good thing. So, for example, the way we're being forced to live now, which is much more local, much more, well, much more local full stop because we can't travel. But, you know, we needed to be much more local anyway. I mean, obviously not completely stopping flying and completely stopping trading or anything daft like that, but just relocalizing and getting more locally resilient. And I mean, in fact, that's something I was arguing in, in my recently published in the face of the global pandemic book, Cytopia. But in terms of the fragility of the food system, I guess, the fact that it's completely mad to treat food as something that could be cheap, you know, which mm. again is a major, major theme in my book. I mean, there is no such thing as cheap food. There never has been. We've just created this illusion by externalizing all the true cost of food. And they're coming back to haunt us in so many ways now. And, you know, C19, of course, began in a wet market in China. And uh, there's a lot to say about that as well, because it's about humans expanding into territories where we shouldn't be, mixing with ecosystems where we would be much better sort of leaving them where they are, denuding biodiversity, which means that we become more susceptible to zoonotic pandemics. Anyone who thinks about this stuff has been expecting a major zoonotic pandemic for years. It's not a surprise um, because of every the way we feed ourselves is absolutely setting us up for this. So I mean like I say, how long have you got? I mean it's, it's kind of <laughs> keep, keep you know, going. <laughs> Going. Oh, really? Um, well, God, that's a really dangerous thing to say to me. But anyway, but I mean, I, as I say, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, if we're going to try and be optimistic about this, you could say a last throw of the dice chance to really, really look at the way we live from the bottom up. I mean, again, in my book, I'm arguing that we, we should do that through the lens of food. And I, I think, weirdly, COVID-19 almost makes that even more of an obvious way to do it. Because, you know, if you think that a good society is one in which everyone eats well, which is one, I, you know, for me, a very, very good definition of a good society, because eating well is not only eating yummy, delicious food that was ethically produced and didn't destroy a landscape or, you know, enslave someone in order to produce it, i.e. it costs what it ought to cost. Mm -hmm. Then, um, you know, it also means, you know, you can't eat well if you're under threat. You can't eat well if you don't have a roof over your head. You can't eat well if, if you have no income. So eating well also implies that the world around is kind of, you know, is basically in a good place. Mm. But it all begins with food. And then you sort of you work out. In fact, I mean, that's the structure of the book. It came from a drawing I did, which I can show you, which basically goes from a plate of food out to the universe. Um, mm. I mean, this was a very, very quick sketch I did, but it actually, so it goes from a plate of food to a table with people sitting around it, and then you immediately start drawing connections, sharing, caring, etc. A cook figure, love, nurturing, gratitude coming back the other way, maybe. So that becomes the space of the home. And then where does the food come from? A market. So you then have, you know, knowledge, trust, exchange, economy. Where does the market sit in a city? Where does the city sit in a countryside? Where mm. does the countryside sit in 
nature, where does nature sit you know, in the universe? So, so the book is, is, is a section drawn through that drawing. It's like tracing the economics of food from the table to the yeah. source. Yeah, it, it literally, well, it goes through everything. It goes from food to the body, the home, society, which is the economic part, city and country, which is the whole question of how we inhabit the landscape, nature and time. And, and very, very interestingly, what I discovered when the structure that came out of that, again, this is the original drawing I did, mm. food which is the beginning of the journey, and time, which is the end of the journey, they mirror one another because food is life and time is death. <laughs> so life and death kind of balance out. Uh, the body, we're, we're so out of sync with nature and getting back in touch with nature and re readjusting our relationship with it is the answer. So they balance out. The home is all about the fact that we used to make stuff and we used to be very, very directly in touch with what it took to sustain our lives. And now we don't, we just consume. But actually, if we rethink the way we inhabit landscape, again, that is the answer. And it all hinges around the middle bit, which is society, which is about how we share. Mm. So there was this kind of amazing symmetry to the structure that I had no idea was, well, I basically until about halfway through writing the book, to be perfectly honest. So, but, you know, I think, again, as I say, food, the real structure is, is overlapping circles. So every scale at which you ask the question, what is a good life? Everything else is implied in it. And, and the beauty of food as a way of thinking is that it connects everything. Mm. So there's, there's literally no aspect of life that doesn't have some relationship with food. I often say that food is, is a medium for thinking a bit like, I remember there was a brilliant documentary I saw many years ago about the making of the Apollo space suit. And they talked about the difficulty of designing a space glove because they said it has to be able to hold a dime and stop a meteorite. <laughs> So that's a brilliant, brilliant design problem, if you know what I mean. You know, so what it tells you, and, and food is a bit like that, because food is as complex as life itself, but it's also super simple. Mm. So that's a beautiful thing. It's simple, we intuitively understand it, and yet it's as complex as the world. Well, we love hearing this perspective. I think that, you know, why we're doing this program is really to, to put these perspectives at the fore and, and use this moment and this, the explicit value of this moment and what we're learning every day to sort of think about the ways that we emerge from it. Mm. In, 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 the, in the short term, one of the things that I was curious about hearing from you about is, is how we're seeing the, the kind of restaurant world. Mm. We were excited to see what Daniel Hum did at 11 Madison, this almost wartime yeah. moment of, of you know, high luxury inverting into a commissary. Yeah, yeah. And the same is happening here. So, I mean, I think that's super interesting as well. I mean, to a certain extent, what we're rediscovering is that whenever you eat, even if it's sort of, you know, three-star Michelin stuff or whether it's stuffing a packet of crisps in your face on a bus, it's still an absolutely fundamental act. It's still about, you know, the food that you eat is the future you. It's, it's literally what's going to make your body as you go forward in life. It, it's sacred. It's profound. And feeding somebody else is is the ultimate act of love. Mm. It's giving life. So I think for chefs, as you say, to maybe their kind of um avocado on top of a crab claw type world, just thinking actually what I do for a living is feeding people, mm. and that's an absolutely fundamental and wonderful thing to do. I think that's very very beautiful. Um, and the same thing's happening over here. I mean, high end restaurants are seeing how they can repurpose themselves in order to feed people and. Mm. and 
you know, it, it is very much going back to basics. And I, I think, you know, COVID-19 in general is very much a kind of rediscovering what it's all about moment. And that's absolutely what I've been arguing for in my book as well, is just actually the stoic viewpoint, which is being grateful to be alive and to be healthy. That's the key to a good life, is to just take joy in the necessary. And that's ironically what Epicurus was arguing for. So Epicurus has got a really bad reputation because, you know, he gave us the word Epicurean, which means someone who likes eating that avocado fume on the crab claw. But actually what he was saying is the opposite. He was actually a stoic. He was saying, enjoy satisfying your hunger every day because that is a pleasure that, you know, your body gave you, nature gives you the pleasure of feeling hungry and then enjoying the satisfaction of that hunger. And I, to me, that's, I mean, stoicism is basically Western Buddhism. Mm. You know, it's all about being in the moment. It's all about being grateful for what you have and engaging with the necessary. And the necessary, of course, is about what it takes to sustain life. And I mean, this is something that I'm also very, very keen on is that I think in the modern world, one of the problems that we, we I almost put that in the past tense, by the way, I mean, the modern world, as we knew it until two weeks ago, something that was making us sick was that we'd got completely disconnected, most of us, from the primary act of sustaining our own lives. You know, so mm-hmm. I work in an Amazon call centre, I'm treated like a robot, I get paid just enough to live, I'm too exhausted when I get home to cook, so I eat some terrible takeaway, and then the whole thing repeats. That's not a life. That's just no. not a life, you know. Um, mm. So we, we absolutely have to get away from this. And I mean, something I think is really important to say is that we are at a crossroads or even think about it like a railway track. The train was going really rapidly in one direction and it just looked certain to carry on, despite everything Greater Thunberg was saying. Um, it looked very likely to carry on. Um, now there's an absolute pause and the, the train's ground to a halt. And there's a set of points right up ahead and we can either flick them left or right, and that is going to determine the future of our species. It's that big. Mm. And so I think the job of people like me who've spent the last eight years in my pyjamas thinking about this stuff anyway, and I even, you know, before COVID-19, I used to say, you know, what I'm doing here is I'm trying to design a lifeboat for people. We're on the Titanic. We're steering towards the iceberg. We know we're going to hit. We need people to jump off a ship. I mean, ideally persuade the captain to steer away, but the captains aren't listening. They're all kind of under a sun lamp trying to work out how to get re-elected. They're, they're not listening. So I, I hope it's obvious to whom I'm referring there. And we have one who's just as bad, by the way. Anyway, <laughs> what I want to do is I want to design a lifeboat that's so attractive that somebody on the Titanic goes, hey, do you know what? I think I want to be on that instead of this. Mm. And they jump off. And even if they don't jump off, when we hit the iceberg, it's ready. Mm-hmm. And it's called a good life that is not predicated on destroying the planet. And it's a good life that's based on basically internalizing the necessary and embracing mm. and enjoying the necessary. So again, mm. food's at the core of that. But, you know, we have to do that anyway. Mm. I think what you're saying in part is also about serving all of society. And right now there's been a situation where you know, a certain population is being sustained or satisfied. And there's a lot of people who aren't. So I'm curious, like, how do you think going forward or even through this, we're going to be able to feed cities with these populations Mm. that are under quarantine Mm. and the the millions unemployed, the poor people without basic services? What are what are some solutions you think or, or opportunities here to look at our food systems and see how they might serve us better? That's really, really key. And 
I mean, there are two aspects of this. Inequality in the West hasn't been this high since the Victorian era. This is deeply, deeply shocking. So neoliberal capitalism is, is just a fail. It's just a big cross in the box. That's just not working. That's problem one. Problem two is the global north and the global south. So as you know, I mean, the major population explosion was mostly in Africa, for example. That's where the next wave of development and transitioning to presumably an industrialised urban economy was, was due to take place and, 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 and indeed is still due to take place. Mm. So we have two sets of interrelated problems, but it's all, as you absolutely rightly say, about one small group of people having it fine and the vast majority not having it fine. And if you believe, as I do, that a good society, as I was saying, is one in which everyone gets to eat well. And by the way, everyone includes non-humans, because when you eat, you're part of a a natural chain. I mean, Darwin pointed this out, and he almost didn't publish it, because he knew it'd be very, very controversial. But, you know, I eat my chicken, um, not very often, but just occasionally when you really have to. The chicken ate grain, the grain ate soil, the soil ate was once a living thing, and just so it goes round and round and round. So it's, it's everyone eating well, humans and non-humans. Uh, that's what a healthy ecosystem looks like. So how do we make this happen? As you say, I am, I'm a sort of a food urbanist. I have no job title, really. But I mean, I'm someone who thinks through food and I was an architect in a former life. So I guess that makes me partly a food urbanist. For me, this is a really important concept. Aristotle called us political animals. And Aristotle's the first person, especially in the West, to think systematically about not only what a good life was, but how we actually get there. He said something really important. He said a good life has to be within society. You can't have an individual good life if society is not good too. So every good life, individual good life, has to work for society as a whole. Mm. That's a really important thing to say. The second thing is if you think of his term political animals, this is a beautiful term. I love this term because it sort of speaks about an inherent duality that we have as humans. We're political, which means we need to be together. We're social. We need to be in society. But we're animals. Oh, that means we really belong in nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you think about it, this is what gives rise to what I call the urban paradox. You know, because the more we gather together in cities to be political, as it were, the further and further we get away from our sources of sustenance. And it's just a dilemma, it's a paradox, because there's no ideal solution to this. I mean, you could say hunter-gatherer societies had it all made because they basically had sociability and nature all in one, because they hadn't built cities or lived in them. But now that we do live in cities, that's the problem. So an ideal habitat for a political animal, which we all are, is to have one foot, as it were, in the city and one foot in nature. And if you think about it historically, that's what rich people have always done. You know, they've always had, oh, the place in the country, darling. You know, oh, the place in the town. You know, if you can afford it, you have both, because that's what we need. But surprise, surprise, most people can't afford to have both. If you're an Indian rural dweller, for example, at the moment, what do you do? You travel into the city for work because you don't have Mm. any work. And then, as we've just seen, with those horrifying pictures of 45 million people, suddenly overnight, there's a lockdown. They're all walking out of the city trying to get home, you know, to where at least they feel safe and there's some chance of feeding themselves. They hope. So, I mean, this is a really, really major, major global problem, as I say, that was already there before Mm. COVID-19, but COVID-19 is just absolutely making visible. Yeah. I think what we need to do, the way I put it, is we need to maximise the urban-rural interface. 
So this is the city and country chapter I was talking about. How do we inhabit land? Mm. So this can happen at any scale. So it could be the city-state where you have a sort of concentrated blob of urbanity surrounded by countryside. That's a very common utopian model. That's what all the early cities did. Of course, we have metropolises now. In fact, those used to exist as well. I mean, Rome was a metropolis. What you do then is you either preserve countryside in the city. And very interestingly, this is something that many cities have done. So London, as you know, has got a green belt. That was deliberately done to limit the size of the city so that you keep the fried egg, as I call it, with the the yolk urban core and the, and the white, which is the countryside. Mm-hmm. Tokyo in 1952 had a land act that basically preserved suburban farms and then the city developed around them. So they're still there. That's fantastic. There are many, many ways of doing it. Right. And you can post fit countryside into the city too. So basically, you know, wherever you happen to live, you've got access to urbanity but also rurality not mm. too far apart yeah i mean in in new york we have rooftop gardens and yeah exactly well that's what i was kind of curious about you know are you supportive of this idea of the kind of integration of a new kind of nature instead of this romantic version of nature and the vertical gardens the terraced you know architecture like bjarke angles is pushing and others of of integrating nature into the vertical structures of skyscrapers Yeah, I I think it's great. I mean, I have to say that maximizing of the interface of urban and rural can happen at any scale. Mm -hmm. That can be me growing herbs on my windowsill. You know, that's it too. I'm a great fan of urban farming. I know Ben Flanner very well, who's the, you know, who is the Brooklyn Grange Mm -hmm. guy who really pioneered the rooftop farming in the US. And I think that's fantastic. I'm actually more of a fan of that in some ways than of vertical farming, because even though vertical farming certainly has its uses, part of what the urban paradox tells you is that you can't feed a city from within a city Mm. because the paradox is that you have to have countryside Mm. if you include the countryside yeah no fine but then you know as we know most cities countryside is kind of all over the world at this point so it's not in one place so you can't do it from within the city but what you can do is grow as much as possible in the city and this is what vertical farms can do they basically replicate what used to happen around ancient Rome, was, which was this stuff called Pastio Velasica, which is basically villa farming, which is high-end luxury farming, producing fruit and vegetables, but also, you know, lampreys, which are little kind of fish that the Romans were obsessed with, and, you know, nut stuff, dormice and stuff like that. So luxury food. I mean, vertical farms, if you look at what they're doing at the moment, the economic model is luxury, high-end microherbs that they yeah. sell to restaurants. This is not the hundreds and hundreds of millions of tons of grain, et cetera, et cetera, that's really feeding the city, and it never mm. is going to be. But I, I love this concept of patchwork farms. So basically, the city feeds itself from a patchwork. So yes, a rooftop farm and a vertical farm, and then some suburban stuff, and then maybe some international trade. That's all fine. But you try to maximize what is done in and around and near the city, and you try to maximize what is seasonal, and regional, and also it goes without saying, you absolutely have to grow organically to the greatest extent possible. And this is simply because we're destroying biodiversity by growing with chemicals. I mean, growing with chemicals is mm. um, a disaster, although we, there is still a nitrogen gap, but maybe that's getting a bit technical, but that can be closed. <laughs> so, so yes, I mean, I'm absolutely a fan of this, but, but mostly because it allows city dwellers to get re-engaged with nature, which is really, really important. And also remembering where their food comes from and seeing it grow and the wonder of that. And of course, rooftop farms like, you know, Brooklyn Grange are much more better set up for this. 
I mean, I think he's had something like 80,000 school kids through there. Wow. Then a vertical farm, which is basically like a lab. You know, you can't go in because the whole idea of it is that it's sealed. Mm-hmm. So you don't get pests. You know, so everyone has to go around in white wellies and lab gear and hair nets and stuff. Mm. You know, so it's not really nature as we know it. No. But I'm not against it. I'm just saying it's not the answer. Mm. I have to say, your your optimism has been quite refreshing throughout this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love, I love that you bring this optimistic take even amidst this difficult pandemic situation. I, I was wondering if perhaps you had advice for the listeners on how they can have an impact on our food systems directly during this time. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, by the way, I should probably explain this word, Zootopia, which, by the way, is why I don't have a a US publisher, because they were so scared by this word, they just wouldn't publish the book. Um, They said they'd publish it if I called it Zootopia, and I I said I wasn't prepared to do that. Anyway, Zootopia (laughs) um, comes from the Greek. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. We apologize. Um, comes, no, no, please, please, please. I know it's not you. Um, it comes from the Greek word sitos, S-I-T-O-S, uh, which means food, and topos, which means place. So it's it's a practical food-based alternative to utopia, hmm. which means either a good place or no place. So the reason I, I, I made the word up is because when I was researching utopia, I remember getting quite depressed. You know, this this greatest tradition about thinking about how we should live in a multidisciplinary way actually can't exist because utopia, by definition, can't exist. And I just thought, damn, we need something practical that we can actually do. And I realized by that point, this is at the end of writing my first book, Hungry Fitting, that, you know, we live in a world that's shaped by food, but we can't see it because food's influence is too big to see because it's literally everywhere. But if you make this mental effort of taking food and sort of sticking it in front of your face and using it as a lens to see through, then it's amazing what you can do because food shapes everything. So, for example, if I decide tomorrow to stop eating industrially farmed bacon and eggs and instead I organically produce muesli, I am making a real difference to an animal's life, to an economy, to a landscape, blah, blah, blah. And every mouthful you take is political, it's economic, and it's ethical. You can't get away from it. Yeah, it's it's like voting. Yeah, exactly. It, it is it is voting. It, it's real voting. It, it's enacting real change because food is physical. It's real stuff. That plate of food in front of you is like an emissary from another world. It's literally come from a real other place that you may never see. But I mean, ideally, you would see. Ideally, it would come from somewhere fairly local and maybe... You could join a CSA, which is Community Supported Agriculture Farm. And the biggest one in the world is in the US as well, where basically you you pay the farmer ahead of time to feed you for the year. So you're you're giving him some kind of economic security. And then you might even go and help him on the farm. And then it's a great day out for the kids, you know, because you're working with animals or you're working out in the open in nature. Obviously, it's organic because otherwise they can't have this model working. Or support local producers by joining an organic box team or something like this. Hmm. Just every time you spend money on food, think about the fact that, you know, think about what effect that is having on people, on animals, on landscapes, just on whether other people can lead a good life. And I'm sorry, those of you who think food should be cheap, there's no such thing as cheap food. Food consists of living things that we kill so we can live. So if you treat Food is cheap, you're treating life as cheap. Hmm. It's just that simple. There is no such thing. 
I think we'll end there. <laughs> Thank you, Carolyn. <laughs> this was such a joy to speak with you and um, really appreciate your your opinions and your, your advice and your ideas. Such a breath of fresh air. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And I, mean, I really wish you and all of you well over there. You know, we're hearing your news. We're hoping that the orange faced one is going to wake up. We need to get through this together. And I think that's the biggest message we need to take out of C19 is we're all in this together. Hmm. And there is a good life we can lead out there. There is a good life to be led the other side. Free food. Thank you, Carolyn. You're very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. Take care. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.